We're so glad you're here to listen to this week's sermon from Park Street Church. Park Street is a historic congregation located in the heart of Boston. But more than that, we're a community of people from all different backgrounds who believe and are united by the good news that Jesus is Lord. Visit us at parkstreet.org to learn about our community. Well, there has been much discussion about time of worship and style of worship over the past week. And I want us to put that aside for a moment and to come and think about the object of our worship. Today in the Christian calendar is Trinity Sunday. And so I'd like for us to use this occasion to turn our attention to the triune God who is at the heart of our worshiping life as a community. J.I. Packer opens his classic work, Knowing God, by quoting Charles Spurgeon's sermon from New Park Street Chapel in London, January 7th, 1855, when Spurgeon was only 20 years old, I might add. This is what he said, the most excellent study for expanding the soul is the science of Christ and him crucified and the knowledge of the Godhead and the glorious Trinity. Nothing will so enlarge the intellect, nothing so magnify the whole soul of man as a devout, earnest, continued investigation of the great subject of the deity, unquote. The great subject of the deity is our subject today. And we're going to take this in three parts. First, what this doctrine is. Second, from what source this doctrine comes. And third, why it matters. I was talking to a member of the church not too long ago, and he shared with me that his father was an ordained Missouri Synod Lutheran pastor who spent years, decades of his life preaching God's word. And when his father was 102, They were just sitting next to each other, and unprompted, his father just said, I don't get the Trinity. (laughs) And some of you may be thinking right now that you don't get the Trinity either. And when you hear that this is what we're going to engage, you start shutting down. This is just some esoteric intellectual exercise in which you have no interest and has no real relevance to you. And I want to say to you, if that's you, I beg to differ. And I believe that you, in your best thinking, would differ as well. That this doctrine of the being of God is at the heart of our life, the heart of our gospel, and the heart, obviously, of who God is. So what is this doctrine? Let's start there with some dogmatic assertions. We worship one God in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And these three persons are distinct in personality, equal in divinity, and unified in being. While God is one, the scriptures clearly affirm the unity, the oneness of God. And each person of the Trinity is truly and fully God, as we say, equal in divinity and unified in being. The doctrine of the Trinity also affirms distinctions in the one being of God. This, of course, has been a wrestling of the church with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Each person of the Godhead has a distinct personal mode of existing. The Father is unbegotten, 
The Son is eternally begotten of the Father, and the Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son. So there is distinction in these relations of origin, unbegotten, begotten, and proceeding. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. They are distinct persons known in their unique relation to one another. As this triune God works in the world, and that is the means by which we know him and his identity is because of his work, the persons of God have a distinct personal mode of acting that corresponds to their distinct personal mode of existing. As explained here by a Reformed theologian, Scott Swain, quote, the Father's distinct personal mode of acting is to act from no one, but to act through the Son and by the Spirit. And as the Son's distinct personal mode of acting is to act from the Father and by the Spirit, so the Spirit's personal mode of acting is to act from the Father and the Son. We know something, that's ending that quote there, uh, we know something of their distinction in the dimensions of God's action that are especially attributed to each person of the Trinity. For example, in a moment later in the service, we will confess our faith with the Apostles' Creed, and we'll confess that the Father is the Creator. And this is to affirm something about the Father's distinctness within the being of God. But that is not to say that the Son and the Spirit are not also active in creation as well. We will remember that the Word, God spoke the creation into being, and that the Spirit was hovering over the waters in Genesis chapter 1. That is that the persons of the Trinity, though having distinctions, when they act, do not act independently. That would be a violation of the oneness of God. When the Spirit acts, the Father and the Son act with Him, and so on. This is called the doctrine of inseparable operations, and it was worked out by the Cappadocian Fathers in the fourth century to affirm the unity of God and the persons of the one God, while at the same time acknowledging that they are distinct, that there is distinction. There is only one God, and when any one of the person act, persons of the Godhead acts, all act, and yet there is distinction in their acting which helps us to come to understand even more the persons of the Godhead. Now, at this point, I want to say this. This is a great mystery. Uh, I'll never forget the lesson that was taught to me by uh, the person, the professor who taught me patristics, early church history over in England. Mark, he said, our job is never to explain the mystery, but to elucidate the mystery. To explain would be to take the mystery away. It would be to reduce it to something that our rational minds can easily and fully comprehend. And when it comes to the being of God, this is not possible. We find mystery right where we would expect to find mystery, in the being of God. When Christian theologians do attempt to explain the mystery, they quickly fall into heresy. And in the Trinity, there are many heresies. In Ari into Arianism, which is that the Son is a creature. Or subordinationism, that the Spirit and the Son, though divine, are lesser divine than the Father. Or tritheism, that there are three gods. 
or modalism, that there is not three distinct persons in the one God, but one God, uh, one person, appearing in three distinct modes, and so on. That is not our task, to explain this mystery of unity in diversity and diversity in unity, of, of, unit, of, of union and unity and distinction in the being of God. Rather, we are to elucidate the mystery, to set it forth, that it might be a source of awe and wonder and fuel a genuine heart of worship and praise for us as the people of God. As we contemplate the being of God, we must do so with humility and dependence. Uh, these are words from the 17th century Italian theologian Francis Turretin, and they're helpful. He says, when we're dealing with this topic, which neither reason can comprehend nor example prove, but which the authority of divine revelation alone proposes to be received by faith and adored by love. Neither can reason comprehend nor example prove, but the authority of divine revelation alone proposes to be received by faith and adored with love. And now we shift to the second point. From where does this doctrine come? It comes only from God himself in his gracious act of self-revelation to us. God's saving work in history gives us an indication of God's unique identity for all eternity. And it is this that is communicated to us through the Holy Scriptures. We know of the triune God because the triune God has revealed himself as triune to us. No one place in Scripture, in God's revelation, affirms the fully developed doctrine of the Trinity as we have come to receive it. To be clear, this took about five centuries for the church to clarify this doctrine. Not as an innovation of the church to be imposed upon um, poor souls like us, but rather as a clarification and elucidation of that which God had accurately and truly revealed about himself to us through the work of the gospel. There are many texts that contain the bedrock of this doctrine, the seeds that come into full flower in the understanding of God's people led by the Spirit in the church. Matthew 28, 19, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit is one great example. Another would be obviously the prologue to John's gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We have union and distinction, identification and difference, all wrapped up in those early verses of John's prologue. And it is the gospel of John more than any other New Testament text that reflects on the distinct and unique relationship between the Father and the Son, where Jesus will say in John 8, I and the Father are one. Or I think that's John 10. John 8, he says, before Abraham was, I am. Deep mysteries, revealed in the word of God. These are the sources of this doctrine. It comes out of God's word and God's actions in the world. And I want us to look at one text, Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7, which serve as a foundation, at least in understanding the, rooted, the roots of this doctrine in the scriptures. Paul writes this to the church in Galatia. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, 
born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Note with me in this text... The three distinct persons of the Trinity are noted in this passage. And they work together for our rescue. There is God the Father. There is the Son. And there is the Spirit. Each person of the Godhead plays a distinct role in the economy of salvation that moves us, humanity, from those who were under the law and therefore under the curse of the law to those who become adopted children. When the fullness of time had come, the Father, who we can rightly think of as the source of salvation, sends the Son. The Son accomplishes the work of redemption by redeeming those who are under the law, by becoming a curse for us, as we read in chapter 3 of Galatians, by dying on a cross and rising again. The Father then sends the Spirit of His Son to us, the Spirit who eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son, to enable us and apply to us the work of redemption that we too might become sons of God. The Spirit applies the work of redemption. The Father initiates the work of redemption. The Son accomplishes the work of redemption. Irenaeus, the great second century theologian and church father, referred to the Son and the Spirit as the two hands of the Father. And we see those two hands on display in the dual sending from the Father. The Son is sent to accomplish redemption. The Spirit is sent to apply redemption. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are involved in this work of the gospel. The great 17th century theologian John Owen writes this, Quote, when God designed the great and glorious work of recovering fallen man and the saving of sinners to the praise of the glory of his grace, he appointed in his infinite wisdom two great means thereof. The one was the giving of his son for them, and the other was the giving of his spirit to them. And hereby was made, was way made for the manifestation of the glory of the whole blessed Trinity, which is the utmost end of all the works of God. More recently, J.I. Packer, the great 20th century theologian, wrote these words, God is triune, and there are within the Godhead three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And the work of salvation is one in which all three act together. The Father purposing redemption, the Son securing it, and the Spirit applying it. The good news of the salvation of God is this is the work of the triune God. Each person, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, contribute to and are revealed by this great work of salvation. Remember how we began, distinct in personality, equal in divinity, and unified in being. The triune God has revealed himself in the work of salvation. And we see the seeds of that revelation even here in Paul's letter to the church in Galatia. 
We see something else, though, and this is the third point, is we see the fruit of the work of the triune God. The fruit of the saving action of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It is, quite simply and profoundly, to bring us, human beings, into the eternal relation of love that exists between the Father and the Son. When the eternal Son became incarnate as man, when he entered into our world and united his one divine person to our human nature by taking on flesh, a human being became part of the eternal life and love of God. Through his death, resurrection, and ascension, and by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, we are now invited into that life to join our elder brother Jesus by adoption. The, the Spirit unites us with Jesus the Son, the eternal Son, our elder brother. And we, and this is mind-blowing, honestly, we now share being in Christ by the Spirit, bonding us to the Son, we now share in the eternal relation between the Father and the Son that is animated by the Spirit. This is what Paul celebrates in our text in Galatians 4. We are no longer slaves, he says, but sons. And in a parallel text in Romans 8, he refers to the Spirit as the Spirit of adoption as sons. And we now cry out, as Paul writes, Abba, Father, the preservation of the Aramaic Abba, which is just Aramaic for father, preserves the language of Jesus from Mark chapter 14, where he cries out to God, Abba, Father. And it's significant here because what Paul is communicating to the church in Galatia and the church today, to us, to you and me, is that you now share in the very same relationship between the, the father and the son. You're taking upon your mouth the very words that the Son spoke to the Father because you have now, by the Holy Spirit, been adopted into that relationship now as children of God. And you too cry out, Abba, Father. We are in Christ. And being in Christ, we are adopted into this wonderful family of God. And now we share in that eternal relation of love between the Father and the Son. In his great book on the Trinity, Fred Sanders, a, a contemporary theologian, and the book is called The Deep Things of God, which is a quote from Thomas Goodwin, a 17th century Puritan thinker. Fred Sanders writes this, The good news of the gospel is that God has opened up the dynamics of his triune life and given us a share in that fellowship. Father's Day is two weeks from now. Many of us have had loving fathers who cared for us and provided for us and reflected something of the nature of God to us. I am grateful for a father who fulfilled this role in my life and still does. And I hope to be that kind of father to my own children, as does every other father in the room. But even the best earthly fathers are not perfect. They can disappoint us and frustrate us and let us down. And for many in this room, I know your fathers were absent or abusive, or controlling, and anything but an example of your Heavenly Father to you in your life. And that hurts deeply, and it causes real pain and real heartache in our lives, oftentimes pain and heartache that takes the rest of our lives to navigate and work through. 
for all of us, however great our Father was or however disappointing he might have been. Death will come one day and separate us from our Father, or even perhaps more tragically, separate us or our fathers from us. The heart of the Christian gospel, which is built on this foundation of the triune God, is that God can become our Father, and we can become his children by virtue of the finished work of God the Son on the cross, and by virtue of the ongoing application of that work through God the Spirit in our lives. No longer slaves, no longer blocked or barricaded from the life of God by sin and guilt and shame, no longer outside of the genuine, true life of the world. No, rather now adopted, brought into the family, made a partaker of the divine nature, as Peter says in his epistle. And once brought in and adopted and made a part of the very life of God, nothing can separate us from that life and love, not even death itself. This is the gospel, summarized here in three short verses, four short verses by the Apostle Paul, that we can be brought in to the eternal relation of love between the Father and the Son. And this gospel, and this is why I wanted to say to you at the beginning that if you want to just tune out on the Trinity, this is at the center of who we are. This gospel only coheres with an understanding of God as triune. this eternal community of love in relationship. That's what you're invited into. That's what you're adopted into. The 20th century theologian T.F. Torrance said this, quote, belief in the Holy Trinity does not have to do simply with our knowledge of God as he is in his inner life and being, but with the very substance of the gospel of salvation. It is indeed God's threefold giving of himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that is our salvation. Unquote. One further observation about the nature of the being of God. Affirmation of the Trinity means that love is eternal. If God were merely one, then he would have had to create something else for love to exist. Love would have then had a beginning. But because God is triune, that means that love, which every single human being knows deep in our bones in some way and feels deeply to be central to what it means to be alive. It means that love is eternal. Love has existed for all of time past and will exist for all of time future because God is an eternal communion of love between the Father and the Son animated by the Spirit. And the gospel is that by the grace of God, you and I are invited into that life of love. And that is astonishing. No longer slaves, but sons. It's even more astonishing when we remember just how transcendent 
and holy God actually is. When we understand and know the texture of God revealed to us in the Old Testament scriptures that the, and, and the proper fear of God that was due to him because even to touch the mountain on which he had descended way up at the top would be to, would be to, to bring certain death upon oneself because he is so holy and transcendent and glorious. That same God who dwelt in the tabernacle and then the temple that could only be approached through sacrifices and the priestly system. That same God entered into our world in the person of the Son who became for us a genuine high priest whose sacrifice of his own life tore the curtain in the temple in two from top to bottom that we might now enter into his presence cleansed, atoned for, redeemed, washed, sanctified. <coughs> and we are brought in by his miraculous grace and amazing love into this relationship that has existed for all eternity. Is it any wonder that worshiping, adoring, contemplating the God who has revealed himself in and through the work of the gospel, the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is to be our highest joy and our deepest privilege is it any wonder that the mystery of the triune God is to consume our hearts, our lives, everything that we have? And it is to occupy us for all eternity. This is the vision at the end of the story in Revelation when we see God face to face. This is what we see in the glimpse behind the curtain in the cosmos in Revelation 4 and 5 that the saints and the elders and the angels and the thousands upon thousands are bowing down in worship of the Father and of the Lamb that was slain. And it is a spirit-inspired worship. The triune God is at the heart of our worship. The Trinity is not an irrelevant, esoteric doctrine. The Trinity is the revelation of the God who is at the heart of the gospel. And it is the gospel itself. May we grow in our elucidation of this mystery and our enjoyment of the love of this God who is now our Father. Because of his sending of the Son and his sending of the Spirit. Spurgeon finished the introduction to his sermon on this subject with these words of comfort in 1855. Quote, Oh, there is in contemplating Christ a balm for every wound. In musing on the Father, there is a quietus for every grief. And in the influence of the Holy Ghost, there is a balsam for every sore. Would you lose your sorrow? Would you drown your cares? Then go plunge yourself in the Godhead's deepest sea. Be lost in his immensity, and you shall come forth as from a couch of rest, refreshed and invigorated. I know nothing which can so comfort the soul, so calm the swelling billows of sorrow and grief, so speak peace to the winds of trial as a devout musing upon the subject of the Godhead. May we lift our heads and plunge our lives into the mystery of the triune God, the God of the gospel, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Oh, we praise you, triune God. Grant us the aid of your spirit that you might be at the center of our devotion 
our worship, our praise, our obedience, our living sacrifice. For you are worthy, and there is no one beside you, no God but you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We praise and thank you for adopting us into your family, that we too can cry out, Abba, Father. We love you, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.